Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 5, 20-26. Follow along on the screen behind me, or you can look on your pew Bibles, page 959 on the left-hand side, Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it is said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then, come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary, who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not go out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of God. If you wish to follow, I encourage you to open to Matthew, the fifth chapter, which is on page 959 in most of your pew Bibles. Not everyone likes Christianity. Many people are disturbed When Jesus says he is the only way to God, people are bothered that Jesus sets himself up as one who is the very presence of God uniquely in this world. But it is very, very rare to find anyone who dislikes the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, after all, We must have real hard hearts to challenge Jesus' teaching, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you, or someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other one also. No, our, our culture, many, many in our culture would say we should live by the moral teachings of Jesus as presented in the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason for that is because the Sermon on the Mount gives to us the way in which we are meant to live in this world today. You know, many of you know I'm fond of quoting C.S. Lewis when he says, when people fall into water, they feel wet, but a fish never feels wet. The reason for that, of course, is that fish were made, they were created for their natural environment being water, so they don't feel wet. But people 
are land creatures. We were made to live on the land. Therefore, we feel wet when we go into water. Fish have a problem when they're taken out of water and put on land. They're, it's not their natural place of living. And then C.S. Lewis goes ahead and he says, we all feel wet here in the world we are living in. We feel wet, we feel out of place because our hearts really say, you know, there shouldn't be such suffering and evil. There shouldn't be terrorists. There shouldn't be murder. There shouldn't be sickness. There shouldn't be death. Our hearts say that. And they're saying that we were made for another world. The world that God originally created earth as. A garden of Eden, the place where he put man and woman where there is no suffering and terrorism and murder and disease. He created us for that world, but when we chose against God, we brought all of these things into our world. And so now we feel wet here. But see, the thing about the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is telling us He's giving us in this message how to live within the kingdom of God for which we were meant. In particular, how do we live now in this time period between where there was a fall, the world we're living in where we're wet, and before the time Jesus returns and brings the kingdom, brings back the paradise for which we are meant to live in. So the Sermon on the Mount resonates with us. It's the place where our hearts say, this is where we should be living during this time in life itself. Uh, A well-known New Testament scholar, Joachim Jeremiah, says he talks about the Sermon on the Mount. He he points out how its message is to those who are in the kingdom, those who have become Christians. I mean, it speaks to all, but it's going to be the life that Christians are called to live. He says this, the sermon says, You are forgiven. You are a child of God. You belong to his kingdom. The son of righteousness has risen over your life. You no longer belong to yourselves. Rather, you belong to the city of God, the light which shines in the darkness. Now you may also experience it out of the thankfulness of a redeemed child of God. A new life is growing. That's the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. It tells us how to live in a kingdom that isn't quite here, but it is growing like a mustard seed. Let's pray. Our Lord, uh, I cannot do justice to this message, to Jesus' words, but your spirit can. Your spirit can take uh, even stumblings from this pulpit and take your word and, and speak into our hearts, dividing between even the soul and the spirit in our lives to speak to each one of us personally and individually. Yet, Lord, we will not hear if we put up barriers today. For this next half hour or so, Lord, may we take down any barriers. May we not listen to the sermon and think about others, but see and hear your message to us personally. Lord, may that begin in my own heart. Amen.
And so we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom living. We started, Jesus starts with the Beatitudes. And even though Beatitudes doesn't mean this, I like to point out, it isn't the do attitudes, it's the Beatitudes. Uh, it's talking about what we, who we are to be in our character. And then, of course, it says, even though we are this in the inner person, we are poor in spirit, we are peacemakers. We don't keep it to ourselves. We, we are to be put, our lights are to be put on a hill for all to see and glorify God. And then, as we saw two weeks ago, Pastor Brandon brought out that Jesus now turns to the law because the law is the way people lived. And he says, I'm not coming to this, to this, to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. In fact, the, I am the fulfillment of the law. The law and the prophets were all really speaking about and pointing to me. I'm not going to take away one jot or one tittle of the law. I will fulfill it all. And then he says something very important. As he calls out the, the religious leaders in the religion of the day in 520. What I want to do this morning as we look at uh, the passage before us, I want to do four things. Because Jesus is going to revision our understanding of the law. Religious people have had one view of the law. Jesus is going to bust through that and give an entire new picture of the law. And so I want to first say, why does Jesus need to do this? Why is he going to give us a, a new vision of the law? Two, what does the passage we're looking at today, which says, do not murder, what is Jesus really saying? What does that passage mean? And what we're going to see, that passage is pointing to something much, much bigger than do not murder. It's talking about our interpersonal relationships and the importance of these. So thirdly, I want to ask the question, why is this so important and so essential to God? And then fourthly, how can we actually do it? How can we carry out and live by this incredibly high standard that Jesus has set before us? So first, why does Jesus give us a new vision of the law? The reason is because religion invariably misunderstands God's intention for the law. And they did in that day. The law for religion always zeroes in, focuses on the external. What are we seeing above the surface? But Jesus is showing in these passages, this is the rest of this chapter, that it isn't about merely the external, but it's about the dynamic of what is going on inside of us, that the law, the spirit of the law, needs to be penetrating and capturing us inside. In 520, Jesus had said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the, uh, the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is incredibly shocking words to that day because if you were going to choose two groups who were icons of spirituality, you would say it's the Pharisees and the scribes who are the teachers of the law. 
I mean, the scribes are those who take the word of God. They are meticulous. They can, they've got the whole thing memorized. They can tell you what everything means and how it should apply to your life. And so everyone would go to them to understand the law, to follow the law. They were held up as the epitome of those who knew the scriptures. The Pharisees, they were the most passionate spiritual people of the day. They were the ones who were all sold out to God, apparently, in the eyes of everybody. They were meticulous about living out every little part of the law and even expanding on it and making sure they fulfilled everything in the law. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he lays out his spiritual pedigree and things he could brag about if he was going to say, God, this is why you should accept me, he said, I was a Pharisee. Wow. And then he says, as to the law, I was blameless. I kept the law perfectly. That's a description of a lot of Pharisees and scribes. They kept the law perfectly. How can we be more righteous than somebody who's keeping the law perfectly? We can be righteous if we realize they're misunderstanding the intent of the law. The law wasn't given as a test to see if I measure up and I get a 95 or a 90 or a B plus or maybe a 61 and pass. That's the way they lived. That wasn't the intention of the law. The intention of the law was to go underneath the surface and bring us into the character of God himself. Um, I like to liken it. The picture that comes to my mind is an iceberg. Now, an iceberg, uh, 10% of an iceberg is above the surface. 90% of the iceberg is below. The law is like the tip of the iceberg. It's what you see. It's the expression of the way a person is acting. But the question is, what's the 90% that's below the surface? And that's what Jesus is going to point out uh, in the rest of this chapter, he's going to talk about murder and adultery and uh, keeping oaths and about marriage and about real love. He's going to take everybody who's been looking simply at the tip of the iceberg and bring them underneath. What's underneath the law? Why does God make the laws he makes? Did he, was he in heaven and saying, okay, I create man, and so I'm going to flip a coin and say, uh, heads, murder's wrong, tails, murder's okay. Heads, okay, murder's wrong. Adultery, heads, adultery's wrong, tails, adultery's okay. Heads, adultery's wrong, no. Did he take a poll of the angels that he call an election? Say, angels, what do you, what do you think? Uh, should murder be wrong? No, there's a minority. That 60% think murder, murder should be wrong, so uh, do not murder. Uh, where does the law come from? It comes from the essence and the character of the one who made the law. 
It comes from the character of God. The 90% below the law is the character of God. So that's why Jesus could say, no, I'm not coming. I'm not going to touch one jot or tittle of the law. In fact, I am going to fulfill it. He's going to fulfill it. He's going to live it out as it has never lived before because he is going to be the very express, live out the very character of God himself. He is going to be one who lives out what is underneath the surface. Religion always gets it wrong. Jesus is trying to change, to correct this, to realize it's the dynamic of what's going on in the heart that the surface is only an expression of what's going on below. So the Christian life is not about living the letter of the law. It is capturing the spirit of the law so that we live out the character of God. We see as God sees. We feel as God feels. We serve as God would serve. That life becomes the expression, not just of the top, but of all of life. So, as we said, he's going to do this when he says, you know, you were told long ago, do not murder, but I say to you. I'm giving a new vision of this command. You were told, uh, don't commit adultery, but I say to you. Uh, You were told... To keep a vow, but I say to you, you were told you can give a certificate of divorce, but I say to you, you were told love. I tell you, love your enemies. So let's, we're, this morning we're just taking the first one of these. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, it's answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. On the surface, the law says do not murder. That's where the scribes and Pharisees were living. That's what they were teaching the people. But Jesus draws back the curtain to give us a true understanding of what it means not to murder. If I were to ask you the question, and you can raise your hand here, how many of you are guilty of murder. Raise your hands. Okay, we got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. A few more hands coming up. Okay. (laughs) I remember after teaching the Sermon on the Mount, I asked the class at WCA, and everybody in the class raised their hand. Because they were getting a new picture of what it means to be guilty of murder according to what Jesus says here. When we hear that, am I guilty of murder, the first thing that comes to our minds, the natural mind, is murder is taking the life of somebody 
intentionally uh, and maliciously. Premeditated murder. And that's often what we still think that command means. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. He's saying, let's look at what's underneath the heart of the murder. And that's what I'm after. And if you have the heart that is angry, you are guilty. Now, let me just take an aside here for a moment because we might have the question, well, isn't there a righteous anger? Isn't he simply talking about unrighteous anger here? And yeah, that is the case. Uh, Just to sum it up, I'll... uh, quote what Kent Hughes says on this. Um, We must not think that Jesus forbids all anger with other people. Jesus himself was angry when he cleared the temple. He was angry with those who assailed him for healing on the Sabbath. He called the Pharisees blind fools. So we conclude that there is a place for anger. Jesus was angry at sin and injustice but he never became angry at personal insult or affront. Peter says that when Jesus was dying, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. See, Jesus didn't have a selfish anger reacting to personal affronts, uh, mad at people who took something that was so precious to him. That was that, That's the anger that he's talking about here. That's not a part of the kingdom of God. He's talking about the, being angry at those who are oppressing other people, those who are keeping other people from getting to be with God. It was not a selfish anger. It was a selfless anger. I think we have to admit most of our anger is not the righteous kind. It's the unrighteous. And Jesus is saying, what's the dynamic? What's going on in our hearts when we are angry is maybe on a different scale, but it is the same thing that is going on in the heart of the murderer. We are guilty. And then he goes on, he says, and and this dynamic of bitterness and anger and selfishness, when it's in our hearts, it also shows itself not just in murder. It shows itself when we say raka, or we call somebody a fool or a moron. Now, the word raka here, as the commentators seem to have different views, the word raka means empty or meaningless. And so some think, Jesus is saying, if you call somebody, uh, you know, empty-headed, that's what he's saying. You say, you, you empty-headed, you numbskull, uh, don't do that. Others, and I tend to go with the, these, see, it not so much as something we would say, but our relationship with others. If we look at, if we treat other people as though they are meaningless, that they are really nothing, then we are guilty. Then he says, if you say to somebody, you moron. Notice the progression here. It says, if you're angry, you're guilty before the court. 
If you say rocket to somebody, you're guilty before the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And if you say, you moron, you're guilty for the hell of fire. Now, Jesus isn't saying, oh, there's these grades here. If, uh, you know, if you're just angry in your heart, well, that's one level. And if you say raka, that's another level. And if you say moron, oh boy, that's the worst of all. You're headed for hell. What he's trying to say is in this entire picture, you are guilty on every level of life itself. And especially, you are guilty before God. I want to say this. If we really get this as Christians, that in anger in our hearts, we are just as guilty as the person who has committed murder, there will never ever be a reason for us to become arrogant or judgmental of others because we clearly stand with everyone who is guilty. We are all need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He goes a little further. He says in verses 22, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer. You may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, as we read this, it sounds like uh, Jesus is being utilitarian at the end and saying, you know, if you're going to go to court, uh, you know, it's best to resolve it before they take you to court because then, you, you know, then you can be guilty and they can throw you throw you in the jail and you're going to be guilty forever. No, he's just using a human illustration to drive home to us the real penalty for us not reconciling with one another. What do we deserve if we don't reconcile one another? To be taken to court, to be locked away until everything is paid for. Fortunately, Jesus Christ paid for it all. But... We shouldn't use that as an excuse to not reconcile. But pay real close attention to us here. If I were to ask you the question, I think most Christians, uh, what's the most important thing to God? And I think we might say, well, our purpose is to glorify God. So maybe most important of all is for us to worship God. And yet, what do we see in this passage? It says, if you are going to the temple to offer a gift, to offer a sacrifice, and you then realize that you are out of relationship with another brother or sister, leave your offering there before the altar and go and reconcile. And only after you are reconciled should you come and then worship God with your offering. What's most important to God? The answer is more complex. There's an interrelationship between worship and, and caring for one another and reconciling. But what I want all of us to see is how dear and how dear to the heart of God, how critical our interpersonal relationships are. 
To God, they are more important than you coming and worshiping on a Sunday morning. So don't bother to worship if you aren't right with each other. And look at it even more closely. Well, excuse me. Let's see. Is is this really what Jesus is teaching? That our relationship with each other is on par with our relationship with God? And we turn to 1 John and we see, yes, that's the case. In chapter 3, he says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And in in chapter 4, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. See, we zero in and focus on it is all about us and God. And God's saying, no. Your relationship with me is not only expressed in worship toward me and love toward me. It is expressed in the way you relate to one another. There is no difference. They are one and the same. That's why Jesus could say there's two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and all your heart. Then he says there's another one like it. There's another one that's just like it. Love your neighbors yourself. There isn't, I got number one and I got number two. He says I got number one and then I got another one just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And and then think of it. When somebody is coming to offer this gift as an offering, I believe they are offering a sin sacrifice. That's what's happening in this passage. Because gift is often tied with the gift and the sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 5.1 brings it out. When When somebody presents their gift and offering sacrifice for sin, So think about this now. Look at what this is saying. If you are coming to the temple whereby you're going to worship and you're offering a sin offering to take care of your sin, don't do it until you've first reconciled. I mean, is God saying here that sacrifice for sin is not efficacious It has no meaning if we are not in right relationship one of another. What's the what's the Lord's prayer say? Father, forgive us as we've forgiven those who sinned against us. Now, let's be clear. Jesus Christ died for sin once for all. When we place our faith in Christ, the entire sacrifice of Jesus Christ is efficacious for us. It is applied to our lives, and our eternal relationship with God is settled once and for all, never to change. However, in our day-to-day living with God, I mean, I can be in my family. I'm a daggett. That will never, ever change. I can change my name, but it doesn't change that I'm a daggett part of that family. But I can be out of relationship with other daggets. And so here, when we are out of relationship with God, we confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But the prayer says... 
if we confess our sins, there's not going to be that day-to-day forgiveness if we're not right with one another. Lord, forgive us as we forgive those who sinned against us. If you were going to present your sin offering, leave it there before the altar. I don't want to. I don't want it. If you're out of relationship with each other. And let's go another step. What's the time in your life where you are most honest, most sincere, and most authentic? It's probably when you come to God to confess your sin. We come to God to confess and say, okay, God, what are the sins in my life? And we start to let down our defense mechanisms. We try to take them out of the way. And so we we confess our sins and we get up and we feel so refreshed and forgiven because we've been so authentic and real with God. What's this passage saying? No, you're not. If you are out of relationship with one another, you know, you may think you're in great relationship with God, but you are not. You may think you've confessed all your sins, but you haven't. You've missed one of the biggest of all. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying so much more than don't commit murder. He's saying, what's the dynamic that is going on inside of our hearts? You know what is so precious and important to God? Yes, this relationship is important, but this relationship is equally important because the way we live on this level really tells us what's happening on this level. First John said it again. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. We're not living authentic, honest lives if we're out of sync, if we hold bitterness toward one another. We're living in darkness. We're blinding ourselves. Yes, it isn't just this. It is this as well. So why is this relationship so critical to God? And that's our third question today. Why is this so important? It's because of who God is. Uh, Many people think of God as a, a unipersonal God. God is one and he is one person. And so it's like God is on a desert island. And he's been on a desert island all alone from eternity past. And then one day he wakes up and goes, I'm lonely. You know, wouldn't it be great to have somebody I could love and somebody who could love me? Somebody I could talk to and have a relationship with? Somebody who would really understand me and understand, I mean, the wonders of who I am. Somebody to appreciate me and and value me. Uh, And since I'm God, even somebody to worship me. So I guess I'm going to create a universe and create people in my image so they'll love me and they'll glorify me and worship me, obey me and follow me. A lot of people have that picture of God. And it's one of the reasons we as Christians, when we talk about God, have a hard time getting through to our culture because that's the way they're thinking about God. But that isn't the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is one God, but he is three persons. He is God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Holy Spirit. So instead of God being on a, a desert island, God is in what I'd like to call a divine party. Um, Cornelius Plant, theologian Cornelius Planting and describes the relationship. He says, the persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the other at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life overflows with regard for each other. What's been happening in God? He has a perfect love relationship before he ever created a person. In fact, I'd ask you, how many of you love God more than Jesus loves him? Does he need our love? Does God need our glory and worship? I mean, how many of us glorify God better than Jesus does? How many of us honor God better than the Holy Spirit does? God had everything he needed. He wasn't a lonely God on a desert island. He was a God, and I like to say, at a divine party of love and glory. It was perfect. It was wonderful. He needs nobody else. So why would he create? Because he is so enjoying that relationship, he wants others to experience it. Eileen was sharing with me when, when Ben was in the hospital, kind of the, the nature of her, her son. And she said, you know, Ben loves Hershey bars. That's the, his favorite thing is Hershey bars. But the thing about Ben is when he gets a Hershey bar, he wants to give it away to somebody. Because he wants someone else to experience all the joy and pleasure that he experiences in that Hershey bar. That's the nature of God. He has such an incredible relationship among himself. He wants others to experience it. That's why God created us. And he brought us into a divine party. But think of a party. If you're the host of a party, you want people to come and enjoy that party. You want them to enjoy you, but you also want them to enjoy each other. God hasn't just invited me into a divine party. He invited all of us into this divine party. He's not just interested in me and him. He's interested in me and you and you and me. That's why this relationship is important to this relationship, because God is a communal God. The church is to be experiencing and living out in front of the world the divine party and speaking out to the world and inviting them into the divine party, celebration of God himself. So when we look at this command and we look underneath and see that anger and calling people insignificant or looking at other people as insignificant, looking through them as though they were a wall, or saying you are a moron, putting people down. It's just as guilty as committing murder. How, how can we live that level? How can we live, you know, Paul said, as to the law, I was perfect, but he wasn't. He was so imperfect underneath. But Jesus is calling us to be a perfect down here. To love with a supernatural love. How can we do that? Um, you know, while I was searching the web for pictures of the iceberg, 
I came across one that truly struck me. And uh, Nancy, if you can get that one. Notice the title, Religious Iceberg. This is what one person, and probably expresses the feelings of many others. On the surface of the religious person is this talk about love, this feigning of love. But what's really underneath the surface of a Christian? We see hate, greed, bigotry, misogyny, submission, homophobiaism, anachronism, indoctrination, child abuse, depression, genocide, slavery, murder, racism, fear, and lies. Where do they get this? Well, there are some extremists that are this. Unfortunately, the, the person who produced this in a broad brush of all religious people by looking at some. But if we looked at the Pharisees, didn't they have some of this underneath them? Wasn't there greed and bigotry and hatred uh, racism, fear, lies. And that's what Jesus was getting at. He says, let's get below the surface and transform this heart. And if we are honest, is there anything on that list that depicts us? I guess I could ask again, how many of us are, murder, are guilty of murder? So, if we're going to reach our world, that has to change. <laughs> even the, the parts that go with us, how can we change? You know, I think the author of this would say, well, you got to become irreligious. Get less religion. That's not the answer. They would say to the Christian, become less Christian. No, transformation doesn't happen by becoming less Christian. It becomes happens by becoming more Christian. Not getting less of Jesus, but getting more of him. We just heard it in Jesus' teaching. That's not what he's teaching. He's teaching the polar opposite. Martin Luther King, during the Civil Rights Movement, he was very disturbed over the response of the church. I mean, many churches were racists fighting against him. Most churches wouldn't get involved. There were a few who did. But from in his letter from the Birmingham jail, these are his words. And they aren't saying, you Christians have been a failure, get less of Christ. He's saying, you Christians have been a failure, you need to really get Christ. And this is what he says. Is organized religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and the world? Perhaps I must turn my faith to the inner spiritual church, the church within the church as the true ecclesia in the hope of the world. Their witness has been the spiritual salt that has preserved the true meaning of the gospel in these troubled times. They have carved the tunnel of hope through the dark mountain of disappointment. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. It's not getting less of Christ. It's really getting Christ. How do we change that picture?
It's got to be what God does in our hearts. How do we get our hearts changed? Well, John said this. We love because he first loved us. We have our hearts changed to be hearts of love when we understand and start to experience and the love of God and make that central in our lives. Paul said this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. We can forgive, we can love by going back to the cross of Jesus Christ. When we understand how much he has forgiven us, our hearts begin to melt. We become embarrassed about our lack of forgiveness. And our hearts begin to be changed. We love because he first loved us. We forgive as he has forgiven us. One pastor tells the story, a personal story. He's, he's a man who is very punctual and highly values punctuality. He's on time because he respects the time of other people. And so he becomes angry when other people are late. He sees it as disrespecting him, not valuing his time, which is so so valuable. He has so many important things to do, but these people seem so thoughtless. And so one of the things he gets angry about is if you're not on time. Well, one day he scheduled to do a wedding at 7.30 in his church. And now because he's punctual, he shows up at 7.15. And the wedding ceremony is already taking place because it was scheduled for 7 o'clock. You could see this man, how horrified, how, how horrified you'd be as a pastor to be supposed to be doing the wedding and somebody else is doing it because you were late. And of course, lateness shows what? disrespect for people, thoughtlessness about it. And so he is so horrified, so down on himself, so embarrassed to see the couple. But he sheepishly goes up to the couple to apologize. They embrace him warmly with smiles and they say, don't worry about it. You know, we know the guy who did it. We invited him to the service. We thought something had happened, so we just went ahead. And we don't want you to feel any embarrassment at all. We want you to come and enjoy our wedding reception with us. Because you're so special. You've, you've been so important in our spiritual lives. You are the one who did all the counseling and gave us the foundation for the marriage ahead of us. Please join us. Wow. That's forgiveness. Now, this pastor says, when somebody's late... He starts to become angry. All he has to do is think of the forgiveness he received from that couple. And he becomes sheepish before the Lord. His heart is corrected. Now, if just thinking about the forgiveness by one couple over one event in your life can change a heart like that, imagine the transformation that will happen in our hearts 
when we understand the vastness of the forgiveness that God has given to us, we murderers, <laughs> wow, we could never not forgive someone else. Why did Jesus put in the prayer, forgive us if we've forgiven others? Because if we are not forgiving others, we clearly have not let the gospel sink into the heart of our lives. Because if it does, we forgive and we are transformed where God wants the transformation. And what comes out at the top is love to others. Our Father, we thank you that Jesus comes to correct. He comes to correct religion and the wrong views. He comes to correct us today. We pray that your spirit would do your work in our hearts and lives, that you would line us up and draw us into the very character of God himself, being grounded in the gospel, attached to it, living out of it, that transforming truth. Amen.